You may be seated, and this morning we are going to be talking about uh, the gospel of love. And, and if I put a subtitle to this message, it would be Thoughts on the Most Famous Verse in the Bible. One verse, the most famous verse of the Bible. When you think of some, something famous, what comes to mind? Maybe a college or a university, Yale, Harvard, Cambridge, Oxford. I mean, clearly I know everybody in this room is thinking of USC, right? Right? Uh, all right. Some other university it could be. What about the most famous president? George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, Barack Obama, Donald Trump? I don't know. But when it comes to the most famous verse in the Bible, I would wager, if I were a betting man, that everybody in this room would say John 3.16. There's no doubt. I was talking with one of my patients at work yesterday, and we were just talking about, hey, what are you doing this weekend? What's going on? He was asking me, are you going to get back in the water? Are you going to surf this and that and the other? And we were just beginning to talk about some things. I said, well, you know, I don't have time this weekend. I'm, I'm preaching at church. He knows me well enough to know that he can ask, really, what are you preaching on? And I said, and I said, oh, John 3.16. He said, oh, that's the verse that is on the placard at the football games. Yeah, I have no idea what that is about. I have no idea why they do that. I have no idea what that verse is about, but I see it all the time. And I laughed and I chuckled and I said, that's exactly why I'm preaching on that verse. Because we become so familiar with it, we become so complacent, we just kind of rattle it off. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish and have everlasting life. That we don't even think about it. We don't stop to think about it. We're going to see this verse next week at that football game that's going to be played somewhere else. We're going to see it. And when we see that verse, I hope that after today, you're going to think about that verse and what it means. This is absolutely where John the Apostle wants us to see and savor the gospel of love. Today, I want to look at six aspects of the gospel of love. Six aspects. Let me give them to you. Don't think about trying to write them down all at once because I'm going to give them to you again. I'm going to give them to you multiple times. Six aspects of the gospel of love. Number one, the source of the gospel of love. Number two, the extent of the gospel of love. Number three, the quality of the gospel of love. Number four, the cost of the gospel of love. Number five, the purpose of the gospel of love. And number six, the result of the gospel of love. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John 3. And I'm going to read in context this verse, but I'm going to start in verse 9. Because we need to get an idea of the context where this verse occurs. So John 3, starting in verse 9, we know that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. And, he, and Nicodemus says to him, says to Jesus, how can these things be? How is it that I have to be born again? What does that mean, Jesus? I don't understand. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, as Moses lifted up the serpents in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. 
Pastor Patrick preached on this passage already. He preached it back in October of 2015. If you missed that sermon, I would encourage you to get on the Internet, get to the website, and listen to it again. And in that sermon, he gave us 12 amazing reasons why this verse is the greatest verse in the, in the Bible. Uh, by way of quick review, they are the greatest being, the greatest reason, the greatest need, the greatest act, the greatest gift, the greatest opportunity, the greatest response, the greatest savior, the greatest promise, the greatest contrast, the greatest certainty, and the greatest possession. Aren't you glad that today we're only doing six? Six aspects. And I want to look at these six aspects of the gospel of love so that our hearts are stirred for the world around us to share the amazing gospel. John MacArthur says that this verse is a statement of the magnitude of God's love. John Calvin put it this way. Christ opens up the first cause as it, and, as it were, the source of our salvation. And he does so that no doubt may we remain For our minds cannot find calm repose until we arrive at the unmerited love of God. As the whole matter of our salvation must not be sought anywhere else than in Christ. So we must see whence Christ came to us and why he was offered to be our Savior. Both points are distinctly stated stated to us. Namely, that faith in Christ brings life to all. And that Christ brought life. Because the Heavenly Father loves the human race and wishes that they should not perish. And this order ought to be carefully observed, for such is the wicked ambition which belongs to our nature, that when the question relates to the origin of our salvation, we, we quickly form diabolical imaginations about our own merits. Accordingly, we imagine that God is reconciled to us because he has reckoned us worthy that he should look upon us. But Scripture everywhere extols his pure and unmingled mercy, which sets aside all merits. And isn't that true? Isn't it that we think that God chose us because I am such a great guy? Who couldn't like me? I'm so likable. Well, if you get to know me, you're going to see my rough edges and maybe not like me so much. And that's why we need to look at this verse with new eyes, with a fresh perspective. So with that, the first thing that we need to look at is the source of the gospel of love. The source of the gospel of love. Clearly, John gives us that source when he says, for God. God is this source. Well, who is God? I think the Westminster Confession does a great job in defining the God of the Bible. When they write down, there is but only one living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will. For his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Our God is unequaled and unrivaled in the universe. There is no one like him. The Puritan Stephen Charnock wrote a book on the existence and attributes of God, over 500 pages of really small print, single-spaced, and an incredible, amazing tribute to God's holiness, goodness, wisdom, power, dominion, his sovereignty. Scripture tells us that our God is a consuming fire in Deuteronomy 4 and Hebrews 12. Our God is a jealous God. In Exodus 20, when he gives the Ten Commandments, our God will not give his glory to another, he says to Isaiah in Isaiah 42. And yet, our God is a compassionate God. Deuteronomy tells us, Moses tells us in Deuteronomy 4, and when Moses asked God to show me your glory, this is how God describes himself to Moses in Exodus 34. 
starting in verse 5, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. In Hebrew, it would be Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. That is the God that we have that gave us the gospel. The one who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. This is the God of the gospel. A God who abounds in steadfast loving kindness. That word in the Hebrew is chesed. It is an amazing kind of love that only God can give towards his creatures. It is unchanging. It is perfect. It is immutable. It doesn't ever waver. And it's deep. So deep that it's almost incomprehensible. John talks about this kind of love also in John 15. And Jesus, he quotes Jesus by saying this. John 15, verses 12 to 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This command I give to you, that you love one another. God's love, Jesus' love, has three distinct qualities. It has infinite value. It has substitutionary character. And it has redemptive consequences. Infinite value. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. This is an ongoing love that God gives through Jesus to all who believe in him for eternity. Infinite value. Substitutionary character, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Substitutionary death and redemptive consequences. No longer do I call you slaves. But now I call you friend. Redeemed. John talks about that kind of love again in 1 John 4, verses 7 to 21. I don't want to read that whole passage, but I do want to read a couple of highlights. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And he goes on to explain that phrase, God is love, in the rest of that passage. Have you ever asked why God's loving forgiveness is of any value whatsoever? It is of value because it enables you to enjoy fellowship with God. It reconciles you to God. It brings that relationship back into harmony. If you don't want forgiveness for that reason, you won't have it at all. God will not be used as currency for the purchase of idols. And even John, at the end of 1 John, he says the very final verse, remember, little children, guard yourselves from idols. You can't use God as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Why do you want eternal life? Why? Because hell is a horrible alternative? Because your loved ones are in heaven? Because it is paradise and offers endless pleasure? There's one thing missing in all of those reasons. And that one thing is God. The saving motive for wanting eternal life is found in Jesus' prayer in John 17. John 17, verse 3, he says, This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
if we do not want eternal life because it means joy in God, then we won't have eternal life. We simply kid ourselves that we're Christians if we use the glorious gospel of Christ to get what we love more than Christ. John Piper puts it this way. The good news will not prove good to any for whom God is not the chief good. Let me say that again. The good news will not prove good to any for whom God is not the chief good. God is the source of the gospel of love, and God is our chief good. What is the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Catechism, first question, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? To know God and enjoy him forever. Or John Piper says, to know God by enjoying him forever. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon titled, God God Glorified in Man's Dependence, when he preached it in 1731, said this, The redeemed have all their objective good in God. God himself is the great good which they are brought to the possession and enjoyment of by redemption. He is the highest good and the sum of all that good which Christ purchased. God is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. God is their wealth and treasure, their food, their life, their dwelling place, their ornament and diadem, and their everlasting honor and glory. They have none in heaven but God. He is the great good which the redeemed are received to at death and which they are to rise to at the end of the world. The Lord God, he is the light of the heavenly Jerusalem and is the river of the water of life that runs and the tree of life that grows in the midst of the paradise of God. The glorious excellencies and beauty of God will be what will forever entertain the minds of the saints And the love of God will be their everlasting feast. The redeemed will indeed enjoy other things. They will enjoy the angels. They will enjoy one another. But that which they shall enjoy in the angels or each other or in anything else whatsoever that will yield them delight and happiness will be what will be seen of God in them. The gospel is ultimately about God. He alone is the author and the goal of salvation. The good news of John 3.16 is that God is the chief end of the gospel. He loved not simply to give us forgiveness or eternal life, but to give us something even greater. To give us himself. How big is your view of God as the source of gospel love? How big is that view? Second, what is the extent of of the gospel of love. What is the extent of the gospel of love? Because God so loved. We live in a situation, we live in a society, we live in a world where love has been grossly manipulated to condone just about any and every sinful activity and make it legitimate. This makes our job a little bit more difficult as we seek to truly understand the doctrine of the love of God. Don Carson says that the love of God in our culture has been purged of anything the culture finds uncomfortable. The love of God has been sanitized, democratized, and above all, sentimentalized. It has not always been so. In generations when almost everyone believed in the justice of God, people sometimes found it difficult to believe in the love of God. The preaching of the love of God came as wonderful good news. Nowadays, if you tell people that God loves them, they are unlikely to be surprised. Of course God loves me. He's like that, isn't he? Besides, why shouldn't he love me? I'm kind of good looking, or at least as nice as the next person. I'm okay, you're okay, God loves you, God loves me, and so on and so forth. The Apostle John was staggered by the magnitude of God's love. He was staggered by the implications of God's love. And he stressed that so much that he became known as the Apostle of Love. John had a choice of four Greek words when he wrote this. 
and he used the one Greek word that was understood at the time to be the least glorious or the lowest form of love in that secular society, in that culture. And he elevated that love to the level that is beyond comprehension. Why would he do that? Because he wanted us to know that this agape love, this self-sacrificing love, is the kind of love that sees the other person as more important than ourselves. The doctrine of the love of God is so much more than what so many make it out to be. It is not merely an emotional feeling. So how does God love here? How does John see God's love here? Don Carson, in his book, The Love of God, or not his book, but a book that he has a chapter in called The Love of God, wants to make sure to draw our attention to five distinguishable ways the Bible speaks of the love of God. I'm just going to go through them quickly with you. Five ways the Bible talks about the love of God, and then we want to highlight one of them. The first way is the peculiar love of the Father for the Son and of the Son for the Father. This is an intra-Trinitarian love. This is the kind of love that is only in the Godhead in eternity. We don't understand this kind of love because it is so perfect, it is so pure, it is so amazing that it's almost incomprehensible for us. We are going to experience that kind of love eventually in heaven someday, but the Bible talks about this love as being perfect. The second kind of love is God's providential love over all that he has made. And you hear scripture talk about this. God makes the rain fall on the wicked and the good at the same time. God cares for his world in a providential sort of manner because he loves what he has made. The third way and the way that we see it here is God's salvific stance toward his fallen world. He gave his son to redeem the fallen world. And God loves in a way that saves. Fourthly, God's particular, effective, selecting love towards his elect. We see this throughout the Gospel of John. We see this throughout Scripture, where the elect may be the entire nation of Israel or the church as a body or individuals In each case, God sets his affection on his chosen ones in a way in which he does not set his affection on others. It is a particular love. And then fifthly and lastly, God's love is sometimes said to be directed toward his own people in a provisional or a conditional way, conditioned on their obedience. If you do this, there will be this. If you obey here, you will have blessing. If you do not obey you will not have blessing. We heard that this morning in Family Bible Hour, even. Jude exhorts his readers to keep yourselves in God's love. That implies the reality that maybe you may not be in God's love all the time. So it means that there is work to be done in keeping ourselves in God's love. So as we understand God's love here in a salvific form, it's meaning that God loves us because he wants to save us. How does scripture expand on that? I think John does it in his letter, 1 John. And 1 John 3, 1 is a great commentary on the love that is seen here. Listen to this verse. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. God just gave John the insight, and he just says, how great, how great. So simple, and yet so profound at the same time. John doesn't employ a dozen adjectives or superlatives to talk about or describe God's love because all of the descriptive language known to humanity would never come close to telling us the full truth of God's love. We sang a couple of songs today about the deep, deep love of God. It is immeasurable. He simply calls our attention to the inexpressible wonder of it. How great. Paul saw it the same way. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, he says this. 
God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why would God choose to love finite, fallen, sinful human beings at the cost of his own son's life? Why? That doesn't make sense. Why didn't God just write us all off as wretched sinners and give us what we deserve, the objects of his wrath, and display his glory in judgment rather than salvation? Have you ever truly pondered the mystery of such great love? Why is it that God's greatest love isn't bestowed on the angels who never fell or who faithfully throughout all time have been loyal to love and worship him in heaven? Why would God even bother to love us? much less pay so high a price to demonstrate his love for us. Are you ready for the answer? I don't know. I don't know. The reality is that the answer to most, if not all, of these questions is absolutely shrouded in mystery. It is an immense, incomprehensible wonder beyond the fact that his love for sinners will have the particular result to glorify himself. We do not know why God chooses to love fallen sinners. We just don't know. I have no idea why God chose to love me. There is nothing lovely in me. If you know me like my family knows me, you know that I am not always a nice person and it comes out sometimes and it is not good and yet god loves me he died for me and he forgives me and that is incomprehensible the reasons for his love are found in him alone that's it not in those whom he loves and this is a tremendously humbling truth God's love is graciously, freely bestowed, not merited by anything that we can do. There is no occasion for human pride in the doctrine of God's love. But there are at least three results directly tied to his love, tied to this love, that becomes clear in the life of the believer. Three results. Number one, a sober-minded humility. A sober-minded humility. James tells us to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God so that he might lift us up. Why does God love me? I have no idea. And that humbles me to the core. When I've shared that love with other uh, friends and other people that I've, acquaintances that I've met, especially if they're Jewish and they're very orthodox in their Jewish faith, they look at me as if I am saying something that is the most arrogant thought that I could ever think. You are nothing to God. Why would he even bother with you? And, and they're right. I am nothing to God. Why would he even bother with me? And scripture tells me that he did. And that is humbling. That is humbling. Secondly, the second result is a deep gratitude. A deep gratitude. I cannot be grateful enough for the saving love of my God. And it provides and, and, and just gives me an incredible amount of peace. And thirdly, it gives me a quiet reverence for a faithful and obedient heart. It causes me to want to obey. It causes me to desire that which God wants for me, which is obedience, because he wants to bless through that obedience. It causes me to want to be faithful, to persevere in walking with him. Those are the results of the love of God. We've seen the source of, of the gospel of love in God. We've seen the extent of the gospel of love, which is incomprehensible. And now, thirdly, the quality of the gospel of love. Honestly, I wanted to make this point to be the object of the gospel of love, because obviously it, it says God so loved the world. It's an object. And yet, when you study this passage and you look at it for all that it means, John is not talking about the object of God's love here. He is truly talking about the quality of the love that God shows. For all that is good and interesting and beautiful about the world, 
there is one thing that we have to keep in mind. It is overrun with sinners and has become a wasteland. It is overrun with sinners and it has become a wasteland. So as theologians and pastors and teachers have looked at this verse and have looked at this this text, they've come up with four possible answers as to what John is talking about here. So I'm going to give you the four, and we're going to talk about one. The first one, the first answer of what John is talking about here in the world is all people without exception. Okay? All people without exception. That God loves every person head for head equally. The argument goes something like this. God loves every person. Christ died for every person. Therefore, salvation is possible for every person. Hear that word, possible, for every person. The natural conclusion of this position is that every person is actually saved and not just potentially saved. If God loves every person and Christ died for every person and God's love is not impotent and Christ's death is not ineffectual, then the only, in, the only conclusion one can draw is that salvation has been secured for every person. But we have a problem. Because the context of this verse, the context alone refutes that assertion. Verse 17 and 18. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that, through the, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Clearly, not all humanity is going to be saved. There is no universal salvation. There are going to be those that will spend an eternity in hell. So all without exception cannot be what John is talking about here. Secondly, all people without distinction. All without distinction. That God loves more than one type of person or more than one type of ethnic group. And I think that we can all say amen to that, that that is true. But it doesn't quite capture the jolting contrast of God so loved and the world that John is deliberately drawing here. There's a popular nuance, thirdly, of the all people without distinction argument that is possible or popular in reform circles that would argue that here, what John is talking about is that the world here means the elect. <clears throat> to be honest with you, I think you have to do a lot of hermeneutical gymnastics to get there. I, I don't think that's what John is talking about here either. Throughout John's gospel, we read verses about the particular nature of God's grace in John 6:37, John 10:14 to 18, John 15:9, John 17:9, we see that. We see that there is a particular group of people that God loves and calls. We see that. But the point is that God's people are chosen from an unbelieving world. But the focus on the term world here is not so much on the identity of God's people, but on the nature of God's love. And that's what I want to say, fourthly, is that I do believe a solid case can be made for understanding that world here refers to the quality of God's love, the nature of God's love. B.B. Warfield preached a sermon entitled God's Immeasurable Love, and he says this, World is not here a term of extension so much as a term of intensity. Its primary connotation is ethical. And the point of its employment is not to suggest that the world is so big that it takes a great deal of love to embrace it all, but that the world is so bad that it takes a great kind of love to love it at all. And much more to love it as God has loved it when he gave his son for it. The world here represents sinful humanity and is not worthy of God's saving love. Apart from the love of God, the world stands under God's condemnation. But in Christ, 
Believers experience God's surprising, redeeming, never-ending love. And this is all about the greatness of our God. The greatness of our God. Victor Hugo put it this way. The supreme happiness in life is the conviction that we are loved. Loved for ourselves, or rather, loved in spite of ourselves. And that is the point that John is trying to make here, that God so loved the world in spite of the world. Not the bigness of the world, but the badness of the world. We are loved in spite of who we are as sinners, not because of how good we are or how good we can become. The source of the gospel of love is God Almighty, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God who who is himself love. The extent of the gospel of love is at the same time immense and mystifying. The quality of the gospel of love is immeasurable. Immeasurable. And fourthly, the cost of the gospel of love. The cost of the gospel of love. He gave his only begotten son. It has been said that the idea that God the Father would give God the Son, the only begotten Son, the unique Son, to be sacrificed on a cross in place of sinners as cosmic child abuse. I would extend to you and I would submit to you that the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ is the supreme act of love in the universe that shows just how much the gospel of love truly cost God the Father. He gave his only begotten Son. What I'd like to do here is look first at the gift of the cross, and then we will look at the gift of the Son. The gift of the cross, number one, the nature of that gift. We see that the cross was the giving of God the Son by God the Father for the salvation of the sinful world. Ultimately, Luke tells us in Acts 20.28 that God redeemed the church with his own blood. At Calvary, the world stood before God and said, We hate you this much! And God stood before, before the world and said, I love you this much. Number two, we see the planning of the gift. We see the planning of the cross. The cross was no accident. This cross was not uh, catching God off guard. It was planned before the world began. We see that all the way back in Genesis 3. When the curse uh, came upon the world, God said to Eve, I will put enmity between your seed and his seed, sending to Satan, and he will strike you on the heel, but he will crush his head. We knew that there was going to be something happening to the Messiah from Genesis 3.15 that we ultimately see here in the Gospels. We see a type of this in Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22 when God calls Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son whom, whom you love. But wait a minute, Abraham had two sons, didn't he? He had Ishmael and Isaac. Why your only son, the son whom you love? Because Isaac was the son of the promise. Isaac was the free son. Isaac was the son that God planned to use to fulfill his covenant promises. And Abraham obeyed and trusted God and took Isaac with him and went and told the young men that were with him, we are going to go over here and we are going to worship God and we are going to come back. And Isaac is walking and says, Father, we have the wood, we have the fire, but where's the lamb? And what does Abraham say? God will provide. And as Abraham is about ready to slay Isaac on the altar, God stays his hand and provides the substitution in the ram, in the thicket, for that sacrifice. We see it. It was planned. Peter in Pentecost, in Acts 2, in that great sermon given by a fisherman, no theological training, says this, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But 
God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Throughout the Old Testament and all of Scripture, we see the scarlet thread of redemption that was purposefully planned within the perfect intra-Trinitarian fellowship in eternity past. Thirdly, we see the giving of the gift. Even in John 3, Jesus himself said back in verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpents in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. At the perfect time Jesus came to die. And he knew what kind of death he was going to die. He knew. He was going to be lifted up on that cross. Adam was expelled from paradise because of his sin, plunging all of humanity into sin after him. The second Adam, Jesus, was sent by God from paradise into the world of fallen humanity, into the world of sin to become one of us so that he could achieve for us what we could not achieve for ourselves. The cross was the ultimate gift of love. Fourthly, the purpose of the cross? To save sinners. To save sinners for his glory. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 1, 15-17. What about the Son? What is so special about the Son? Well, firstly, he is God's only Son. He is eternal with God according to John 1.1. 1, 1. He is equal with God, according to John 1.1. 1, 1. He is unique in that he is not a creature. He is by nature God, very God, according to John 1.1-4. 1, 1 Putting this all together, the Son dwells eternally at the Father's side, set apart from all the rest, as the unique object of the Father's love and affection, his most precious treasure. Could you imagine giving your most precious treasure, one of your own children, to die for Charles Manson? To die to save Adolf Hitler? That's what God did. That's what God did. Number two, he was given as a sacrifice. The hymn writer correctly wonders what wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. What human parent could ever willingly give their child as a sacrifice to save others? And yet that is exactly what happened. As Pastor Patrick preached last week, talking about, thinking about how Jesus wondered, can this cup pass? No, it can't. But I wonder if it could. He knew what was ahead of him. He was given as a sacrifice. And number three, salvation is found in God's only Son exclusively. The Father who loves the Son eternally and supremely, who gave his beloved Son as a sacrifice for sinners, displays his loving pur purpose for us by uniting us to his only Son, giving us the right to become children of God. John tells us that in John 1.12. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, describes the character of the eternal life that we receive in him as God's adopted sons and daughters. Ligonier Ministries, uh, two years ago, came out with the Ligonier Statement on Christology, and I think they really got it right. I want you to listen to this. We confess the mystery and wonder of God-made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, he became truly man, two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us, crucified, dead, and buried. He rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. 
Amen. That is the unique son given to redeem us and reconcile us to God. What an incalculable cost God the Father paid for us. Incalculable. Fifthly, two more points. We're going to get through these real quick. Fifthly, the purpose of the gospel of love, clearly seen here, that whosoever believes. The purpose of the gospel of love is to believe. Whoever comes to Christ in faith will not be driven away. John tells us in John 6, verse 37. John writes, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus is saying this, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Jesus told Nicodemus to believe. He told the Samaritan woman at the well to believe. He told the cripple at the pool of Bethesda to believe. He told the 5,000 to believe. He told the Jews at the Feast of Booths to believe. He told the man born blind to believe. He told Mary and Martha to believe. Peter told the crowd in Jerusalem at Pentecost to believe. And Paul told the Philippian jailer to believe. The result of the gospel of love, the result of that belief, sixthly, is that we will not perish but have everlasting life. What does it mean to perish? The only way we can understand that we won't perish is if we understand what it means to perish. In this context here, what John is saying is that to perish means to have and spend an eternity of getting what our sins and our rejection of Christ deserve. Punishment in hell. If you don't believe me, believe the Bible. Believe Jesus Matthew 13, 42, Matthew 13, 50, Matthew 18, 8, Matthew 25, 31 to 46, Mark 9, 43, Mark 9, 48, Luke 3, 17. All over the Gospels, Jesus is talking about persecution, eternal punishment for disbelief, for willful disbelief. So we will not perish, but we will have eternal life. We never truly live until we know Jesus Christ. He is the one who gives us life. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. All who want to come to the Father must go through Jesus Christ. When we who trust in Christ and know him die, we have the hope of a resurrected body, a glorified body, that enables us to commune with God for all eternity in a deeper and more intimate way. This verse, John 3.16 is a confessional summary of the gospel. It originates in the love of God for a disobedient world. It centers in the giving of the unique son to and for the world. And its end is that sinners may not be lost, but live under the saving sovereignty of God. John writes in 1 John 4, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we so also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Beloved, the source of the gospel of love is God in all of his Trinitarian splendor. The extent of the gospel of love is an incomprehensible mystery to us now, but we know that it was extended for our good and God's glory. The quality of the gospel of love is immeasurable, and it covers the sinful wickedness of this world. The cost of the gospel of love is incalculable and was paid in the sending of the only begotten Son of God, the unique one, to the cross to save sinners. The purpose of the gospel of love is for our good in that we may believe in saving faith, trusting in the completed work of Christ on the cross for salvation. And the result of that gospel of love is the glory of God so that those who believe will not suffer under the wrath of God in hell, but will experience eternal life in heaven in perfect fellowship with the Trinitarian Godhead. John Owen observed on this passage, that the revelation made of Christ in the blessed gospel is far more excellent, 
more glorious, more filled with rays of divine wisdom and goodness than the whole creation and the just comprehension of it. Without this knowledge, the mind of man, however priding itself in other inventions and discoveries, is wrapped up in darkness and confusion. This, therefore, deserves the severest of our thoughts, the best of our meditations, and our utmost diligence in them. For if our future blessedness shall consist in living where he is and beholding of his glory, what better preparation can there be for it than a constant previous contemplation of that glory as revealed in the gospel, that by a view of it we may be gradually transformed into the same glory? Beloved, do you see the gospel differently now when you hear the words, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would give us the ability to love you, to embrace you, Even though I took sin in my arms at one time, you loved me before I loved you. I was an enemy, a sinner, a loathsome worm, and you didn't owe me anything. But you love me as a son. You weep over me as over Jerusalem. Love brought you from heaven to earth, from the earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave. Love caused you to be weary, hungry, tempted, scorned, scourged, buffeted, spat upon, and ultimately crucified and pierced. Love led you to bow your head in death. My salvation is the point where perfect, created love and the most perfect, uncreated love come together. For you do welcome me, not like Joseph and his brothers, loving and sorrowing, but loving and rejoicing like the father and his prodigal son. Your love is not intermittent, cold, or changeable. It does not cease or abate for all my enmity. Holiness is a spark from your love, kindled to a flame in my heart by your spirit, and so it ever turns to the place from which it comes. Let me see your love everywhere, not only in the cross, but in the fellowship of believers and in the world around me. When I feel the warmth of the sun, may I praise you who is the sun of righteousness with healing power. When I feel the rain, may I think of the gospel showers that water my soul. Your infinite love is a mystery of mysteries. And my eternal rest lies in the eternal enjoyment of it. Amen.